You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 6th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. It's 1600 in Seoul, 9am in Gaza, 7am here at Midori House in London and 2am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Globalist starts now. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up on today's programme, no humanitarian pauses. Israel rejects the US Secretary of State's chief request during his visit to Israel. I've seen images too of Palestinian children. When I look into their eyes, I see my own children. How can we not? We'll examine where this leaves a power balance as Israel's ground operation reaches new heights of intensity and the Israeli authorities claim the Gaza Strip is now cut in two. Also coming up with the US a year away from the presidential elections, is Joe Biden guaranteed to win the Democratic nomination? One man, Dean Phillips, would like us to think not. My friends, it is time for a change and I am ready to lead our great nation to a secure and a more prosperous future. Plus the newspapers and why K-pop is getting interesting again. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Australia's Prime Minister will meet the Chinese President Xi Jinping in Beijing later in a key moment to improve relations between the two countries. Russia's new strategic nuclear submarine has successfully tested an intercontinental ballistic missile. And there's been criticism of Ukraine's military after more than 20 soldiers were killed at an award ceremony held near to the front line. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, once again, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said there will be no ceasefires in his country's military operation in Gaza until all of the more than 240 hostages captured by Hamas during its 7th of October attack are returned. Israel also says it's cut Gaza in two. The Israel Defence Forces say they launched a significant attack overnight in the north of Gaza and that troops have now reached the coastline. Meanwhile, the Hamas-run health authorities in Gaza now say 9,770 people have lost their lives. Well, I'm joined now by Dr Lina Khatib, who's Director of the SOAS Middle, in- Middle East Institute and Associate Fellow at the Chatham House Middle East and North Africa Programme. A very warm welcome back to Monocle Radio, Lena. Thank you. Good morning. Um, just let's have a look at what happened in the last 24 hours. There were huge attacks last night. Gaza rocked by a series of huge explosions. Um, communications with the Strip have been cut off. And uh, Israel now says Gaza is sliced in two. Yes, this is part of Israel's uh, declared uh, steps, in fact. Uh, they did hint uh, uh, very clearly, actually, a while back, that one of the things they're trying to do is have uh, a, a kind of uh, zone in which uh, northern Gaza would be cut off from the rest of Gaza. Uh, it seems that as far as they're concerned, they think they could uh, create some kind of buffer zone that way um, so that uh, they squeeze the population of Gaza in, in the southern part 
and uh, conduct intense operations in the northern part. Now, that's their declared kind of goals. But of course, the reality is splitting Gaza in half means the people who are still in the north will not now be able to go to the south because not everyone has left the north. And second, uh, creating any kind of buffer zone means, uh, frankly, raising a lot of buildings to the ground in the north. Uh, And so we're talking really huge scale devastation. We're also talking about an an unsure line, aren't we? Because if we look at what happened over the weekend, um, the Al-Maghazi refugee camp, reportedly in a safe area, a very crowded refugee camp, was reportedly struck by Israelis on Saturday night. Uh, Yeah, unfortunately, these kinds of things have been happening persistently uh, for the past uh, months since this war began. Um, Many reports have come out of uh, areas uh, in southern Gaza, for example, that uh, people were told to go to that were eventually bombed. Uh, It seems that, you know, nowhere is really safe in Gaza today. Um, Tell us a little bit more about this furious effort that uh, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has been engaged in since the end of last week. I mean, his his tour of the region has been breathtaking. He's taken in, what, Israel, Jordan, the West Bank. He's spoken to the Egyptians. He's spoken to uh, the Iraqis. He's spoken to the Palestinian authorities. He's spoken to Benjamin Netanyahu. How productive is is this tour? Well, so far, this is shuttle diplomacy that is serving to show that the U.S. will not just uh, stand there and, and, and watch, which is positive. Uh, it shows seriousness when it comes to recognizing who the Arab stakeholders are in this conflict, and that's also positive. It serves to engage uh, with Israel uh, quite closely, which again is important. The only thing is, we so far have seen very few changes as a result of this shuttle diplomacy when it comes to Israel's campaign in Gaza. We've seen some changes at the level of the entry of humanitarian aid, but this remains quite limited. Uh, Reports say that the U.S. managed to tell Israel to reverse its communication blackout on Gaza when that happened the first time round. But now we're seeing another communication shutdown imposed on Gaza by Israel. So again, this shows that there is uh, a limit to what the U.S. has been able to convince Israel to do so far. And after that, he has had to go and convince other leaders of Israel's position, hasn't he? Because when he was in Israel, he was asking for temporary pauses in hostilities so that humanitarian aid could get through, so that there was some remote possibility of of hostage releases somewhere along the line. Um, That was greeted by a firm no, reiterated by Benjamin Netanyahu yesterday afternoon. But then when Anthony Blinken has to then go and travel around, he has to tell Arab leaders who are calling for a ceasefire that that's just not possible because it will allow Hamas to regroup. Yeah, and now even US newspapers like the Washington Post, for example, have been publishing about this limitation. Uh, that uh, the U.S. is facing when it comes to uh, engagement with Israel. And of course, this then 
puts the U.S. in a bit of a, a delicate position vis-a-vis all those Arab countries that Blinken is traveling to uh, to talk to the leaders. Uh, it kind of shows that the U.S. Uh, has uh, limitations on what it is able to do. However, as the Washington Post uh, article from the weekend was saying, uh, some are sa- uh, trying to... Um, uh, talk about the money that uh, the United States gives Israel and saying, can the U.S. perhaps use more leverage uh, to try to get Israel to kind of be more cooperative? But that remains uh, very uh, sensitive for the U.S. I don't think it's likely at all that the U.S. is going to use its funding for Israel um, as a kind of, uh, you know, uh, part of the bargaining uh, that it is doing regarding this conflict. I think the US um, is is in a bit of a bind here. What can it do? Because I mean, we've seen not only um, the US's top diplomat, Anthony Blinken, in the region, going from country to country to country, looking exhausted as he goes on each step of the way. But the CIA director, William Burns, is now in Israel. I mean, to have the US's top diplomat and top spy in the region desperately shows the attention that the United States is paying. But as you say, if your calls are being unresp- not being responded to, the longer term issue of, is, of the United States' influence in the region is really highlighted here, isn't it? And I wouldn't read too much into William Burns's visit either, because I remember in a whole other context uh, him traveling to Libya a few months ago uh, in in context of the conflict there. And again, that visit was simply about very narrowly defined uh, tactical arrangements that the U.S. wanted to do there. So I wouldn't necessarily think that his visit is going to achieve more than what Blinken's visits have achieved so far. Tell us about the humanitarian um, situation in in Gaza and where things are at the moment. We have um, the Hamas-controlled authorities, in uh, the health authorities in Gaza saying 9,700 people have now died. We have this call coming from all of the United Nations major agencies today saying a humanitarian ceasefire is necessary. That's been joined by UNICEF, you know, the UNICEF, the WHO have joined in, the World Food Programme have joined in, plus charities such as Save the Children. Again, that one concerted voice calling for a ceasefire, and there is little chance of that being heard. I mean, the issue of the ceasefire is, uh, again, a very difficult one. Uh, when it comes to aid, uh, some aid has reached Gaza, but it's not enough. Uh, hospitals uh, have said that fuel is running out. Israel is saying uh, fuel entering Gaza would end up uh, with Hamas, although there are currently no reports that Hamas has intercepted any aid uh, entering Gaza. Uh, Overnight, uh, the Jordanian king said that they, uh, Jordan sent more aid uh, to Gazan hospitals, uh, particularly the Jordanian hospital uh, in Gaza. So we're seeing basically um, aid here and there, you know, reaching, but this is nowhere near the need. Uh, there is um, uh, an outcry about uh, what happens to electricity when, when fuel run, runs out and, and all the people on life support and hospitals, etc., um, there is still a shortage of food. Uh, it's a really dire humanitarian situation. And definitely a humanitarian pause is needed 
so that aid can be sent at at a greater scale because you can you can only do so much with conflict raging um but the issue of humanitarian pause versus ceasefire is now um you know being debated because uh some are saying a humanitarian pause can happen for just few hours and allow aid in whereas a ceasefire is a political uh kind of issue and and means two parties are uh seizing hostilities so that they can have political negotiations and neither Hamas nor Israel wants to do that but i think the issue here is not what you call it the issue is to stop the fighting for a while at least so that aid can come in lena let's touch briefly on on the rest of the region and it's reticence or not to get involved in this. We had the um, the leader of the Lebanese Shia Islamist group Hezbollah, um, Hassan Nasrallah, uh, making a long-awaited speech um, on Friday. And, and he seemed rather reticent to, to plough straight into the conflict. Let's have a little listen to what he had to say. What's happening in Gaza reveals and confirms America's direct responsibility for all the ongoing killings, massacres and barbarism, as well as America's hypocrisy. So we have there the leader of, of Hezbollah, but, but Lena, how willing do you think the likes of Lebanon is to get involved in this and also Iran? Very unlikely. I mean, we've seen, unfortunately, overnight an escalation in the sense that uh, Israel bombed uh, inside southern Lebanon, killing uh, a family. A mother and her uh, three daughters uh, were hit and the daughters were killed. The mother was injured. And uh, Hezbollah said that it retaliated by attacking uh, inside Israel. Um, However, I still don't see signs of Hezbollah or Iran wanting to drag Lebanon into all-out war uh, with Israel. And this is despite Hezbollah's propaganda uh, ahead of Nasrallah's speech that, frankly, only served this propaganda to uh, have psychological warfare on the Lebanese people, not on Israel. I mean, everyone in Lebanon was scared in in anticipation that uh, Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, was going to declare all-out war um, on Israel in his speech. And he did not do that, thankfully, in fact. However, all he achieved was uh, to scare the Lebanese. The Lebanese have no appetite for Lebanon to be involved in a costly war. Um, Lebanon is already suffering quite enough with the financial crisis. Dr. Lena Khatib, Director of the SOAS Middle East Institute, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You are The Globalist. Now, few understand the scale of the humanitarian situation in Gaza more than the doctors and nurses working in the territory's hospitals. Not only are they treating people who've been pulled out from rubble or maimed by shrapnel, they're also risking their lives working under Israeli bombardment in hospitals with very little or no resources. According to the World Health Organization, there's been, as of last night, more than 100 attacks on Gaza health facilities since October the 7th. Well, to get a sense of what Gaza's medics are experiencing right now, Monocle's Isabella Jewell has heard from Dr. Omar Abdel-Manan, who's a paediatric neurologist based in London and co-founder of Gaza Medic Voices. She began by asking him about the state of Gaza's hospitals before this most recent flare-up in violence. 
I've been going to the West Bank since 2011, Gaza since 2013-14, and what I can say is that the healthcare system there was on its knees. So it was a healthcare system that was in dire need of urgent resuscitation. And that is as a direct result of 17 years of blockade and siege by the Israeli government, which allowed minimal amounts of supplies, humanitarian aid, medicines, etc. to go in. Having said that, the doctors themselves and surgeons that we worked with were probably some of the most experienced and knowledgeable medics I have ever come across in my travels, especially from the trauma side. And I think that's because of the exposure that they were getting from frequent flare-ups and violence and then bombings. In terms of the actual hospitals, so uh, we worked in a number of the hospitals, our Shifa Hospital, which is the largest trauma center in the north, our Hilal, which unfortunately is now is rubble, the European hospital in Gaza towards the south. So a number of those centers, and, and they had the facilities for what could have been and what should be an excellent healthcare system and the right people and the right knowledge. The problem is just the the lack of supplies and the difficulties that they face on a day-to-day basis. One thing I want to point out is many of these doctors would work six months at a time without pay. So they would go for six months with no salary because of essentially Hamas being government meant that they were sanctions against them. They were not receiving money from whether it was Israel, Jordan and Egypt. And that meant sometimes public health civil servants could not receive their salaries. And yet they did their job day in, day out. What are you hearing exactly from your friends and colleagues in Gaza? Can you paint for us as much as possible a kind of picture of what they've been going through for the past few weeks? The term that I've been using, and it It's very sad, but it's a tsunami of human suffering or an avalanche of human suffering. They have seen levels of injuries and numbers of injured and dead patients on an unprecedented scale that they have said to me and they have said to us as a team is never been witnessed in in history of Gaza, to be honest, in the region or worldwide, frankly. And that includes injuries and deaths to children, women. We've seen pretty horrific and graphic images that get sent to us of, and I'm sorry to describe it so vividly, but dismembered limbs, amputations, children with horrendous burns to their face, to their whole body, 90% coverage of their body of third degree burns, some of which is going down to the bone, some of which the doctors themselves and Amnesty International have come out and said could be consistent with white phosphorus munitions. I know we don't have any physical evidence of this, but this is what I'm just relaying and I'm being told. On top of that, they are having to make heart-wrenching decisions in triage. So they will often have an air raid following on from that. There'll be 20 patients, for example, coming in at one time. And they will have to decide which patients are salvageable and which ones are not. And in better times where there were more facilities, they probably could have salvaged some of those very sick or very unwell patients. On top of that, And this is really important and crucial. There's direct effects and there's indirect effects of these bombings. So when the cancer hospital, the Indonesian hospital, the cancer hospital gets hit and has been targeted, that means patients who would normally be on chemotherapy are no longer getting those drugs. That includes children with cancer. This is an indirect effect of the war, sometimes even a direct effect. We're seeing infectious diseases spreading, although as of yet I've not heard of cases of cholera, diphtheria, typhoid, but I would be astounded if that is not the case, given the poor levels of sanitation and lack of clean supplies. So, you know, it's a, it's a situation that they're describing as horrific, 
they are describing uh, continuous bombings and working under horrific conditions. And they are often working, you know, days on end with very little to no rest. Just in terms of how your colleagues are overcoming some of the challenges that they're facing working in obviously not perfect hospital environments. Have you heard of ways in which they're improvising in order to light operating rooms? Can you tell me a little bit more about that, how they're coping with lack of power and supplies? We had a message from Al Shifa Hospital saying our generators are about to cut out. We are almost certainly going to lose power. And what that effectively means is that children or premature babies who would be on ventilators will start dying, who would need mechanical ventilation, likewise with adults on intensive care units. And we've seen deaths of dozens of premature babies in other hospitals. Now, in terms of improvising, they are, for example, when the lights go out, they often will use their mobile phones to light the operating theatre or the actual surgery that's happening on some of these patients. Now, I'm not a surgeon, but I've worked with surgeons and I've seen them operate in the NHS and I've seen them doing in perfect conditions, so to speak, I cannot begin to imagine how you can even think and begin to operate safely in that environment. That is the choice they are left with. On top of that, they're minimizing use of anesthetics, so they will often use less anesthetic or less painkiller for things like traumatic amputations of limbs, which is horrific. They are reusing surgical gloves, reusing equipment that should be cleaned and should be used once, for example, and disposable, but that is the little choice they have. One way they've improvised, which I know is extremely brave of them, is many of them are fasting. They will reduce their intake of water and food, just like they many of them would do in, in Ramadan when they're fasting religiously, to basically mean, and that means that their family members, their wives, their children can eat and drink. And that is something that I've heard many doctors describe to me. I'm painting a pretty bleak picture, but I think it's important for listeners to understand that the situation there is way beyond bleak. It is apocalyptic. What do you make of these suggestions by Israel that Hamas has been using hospitals in Gaza as bases? Does that at all compatible with what you're hearing from your colleagues working in hospitals? So in all my years of being there, and I've been, you know, almost annually uh, up until 2019, 2020, before COVID, I have been to all these hospitals. My colleagues have been inside all these hospitals. We have always been given access to every ward, every operating theatre. We have never seen anything that amounts to tunnels or tunnel networks. We have never been restricted. We've gone to the Ministry of Health. So I can't for sure tell you that there are not tunnels underneath. That is not my, I'm not a military strategist by any stretch of the imagination. What I can tell you is these hospitals, including Al Shifa Hospital, are currently hosting 70,000 people inside the hospital and within the hospital grounds, sheltering. And that is why that catastrophe at Al Hilal Hospital happened, because when that was directly bombed, and regardless of whether that was a failed Hamas rocket or an IDF bomb, that resulted in mass casualties because so many people are filling such a small amount of space. So in response to that, I say it does not. it is not a legitimate excuse to be targeting civilian residential areas or hospitals. In any other situation, conflict, the targeting of healthcare facilities amounts to war crimes. And unfortunately, many of our Western leaders are unable to stand up and say that.
That was Dr. Omar Abdel-Manan speaking to Monocle's Isabella Jewell. Uh, it's important to raise the fact that the Israeli Defence Forces say it's complying with international humanitarian laws and the laws governing armed conflict and it is not aware of white phosphorus being used on civilians in Gaza. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems, and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. here in London, 8.24 if you're listening in Berlin. Let's have a look at today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Vincent McAvinney, political journalist and regular Monocle radio voice. Very good morning to you, Vinny. Good morning. How's life in the McAvinney world? Yeah, all good, all good. Good. Start of another week. Brilliant. Saw Saw the Taylor Swift movie last night, it was great, so in good form. Uh, Perfect. You're a big fan, aren't you? Like cracked Swifties, yeah, 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 it's great. Mm. Let's have a look at the papers. (laughs) What have you found? Well, this week, looking ahead, on Wednesday, we've got the latest report and talks on EU expansion. Uh, And ahead of that, Ursula von der Leyen made a surprise trip to Kyiv over the weekend. And she said that Ukraine had made excellent progress in the uh, reforms needed for EU accession. Uh, But there's some interesting commentary uh, this morning from the country's uh, deputy prime minister, uh, who says that they don't want to simply sympathy vote on joining the EU. They want to do the hard work to make sure it's a legitimate application uh, and that they want no one to be able to question it. And it comes at a time uh, where there are several countries, particularly uh, in the Balkans, who have spent some decades now in trying to get their applications over the line, thinking of the likes of North Macedonia as the one that the uh, Guardian highlights here. Uh, but the process uh, can be a bit arduous and an argument now is coming from those countries uh, that the EU needs to speed things up because there is more and more EU uh, anti-EU Russian disinformation being put out, which might be turning citizens' backs, uh, turning their heads away from the EU, despite that not being in their best interest. It's it's this perpetual issue that the European Union has now, which is the issue, which is a question of enlargement, mm. because you, Ukraine absolutely brought things to the fore. Because up until that point, I think about six or seven years ago, Ukraine was moving more and more towards towards European Union um, membership, but it was never really taken as something that had to be addressed as a matter of urgency. Then, as you say, you have the likes of North Macedonia countries changing their names to try and get in the club. And and yet the EU is still trying to maintain this sort of very EU approach, which is we will take this step by step, we will do things methodically and, and carefully. Mm, and it's a sort of all in. It's, you know, it's like being pregnant. You can't be half pregnant. You've, you're in you're in, <laughs> or you're not. Um, but there are, there, it's interesting in this article, there is more discussion uh, apparently in Brussels about whether or not there's always been that sort of reluctance to create like a second tier of Europe. But I think the question is now whether they need to do something more to sort of 
bring those countries into the orbit, whether there's discussion here about giving them things like observer status at EU meetings and giving them access to the single market. I think obviously the Brexit years have shown that models can be flexible, different solutions were put forward, uh, and whether or not that is a stopgap that sort of keeps them on the right track uh, and doesn't sort of break the spirits of people. I mean, if you're you know in North Macedonia, you've heard for 20 years that your country has got to make these changes to join the EU and it's still not coming. It's a bit like waiting for Godot, isn't it? <laughs> but not quite as interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> China tries to lure unemployed youth to the countryside. That's uh, a story coming out from Apple News today. So we have perpetual stories of urbanism in China just effectively sucking the soul out of out of the Chinese rural communities. Mm. Um, and we've had a sort of we've had a monocle. Uh, delegation in uh, Shenzhen in the last few weeks saying that they have never seen so many people pulled together in one place. Innovation, technology, progress, Mm -hmm. progress, progress. Um, This is something that obviously if you are a young person you want to be, most of you want to be part of. So China has a difficult problem here, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. This is a long read in the Wall Street Journal, actually, today. And it's fascinating. Uh, and it's fascinating in two parts, what they're doing now, but also Xi Jinping's own upbringing and experience of somewhat, I think, as I understand it, his sort of father fell out of favour in the party when he was a teenager. And he went from living in quite a gilded life in the city uh, to sort of living in a cave and toiling as a, as a sort of farm labourer. Um, and it's something that he thinks is now important because China has this huge problem. So you've got this generation who obviously you know, the sort of what they were dubbed, the, you know, the little emperors that uh, were only children um, who sort of, uh, you know, grew up at a time of great prosperity in China. They're now many of them graduating uh, and there are simply not the graduate jobs that they expected to get. And obviously for any country, uh, large numbers of young unemployed people uh, are not only a concern, but it also can be dangerous because, you know, these are the people most online they're probably having political awakenings. They might start to question the system if they've, as they see it, done everything right, done everything they're asked to their whole lives, and then they get to the finish line and what they were promised isn't there. But part of the solution... Uh, to uh, some of these problems of the uh, lack of employment, but also the hollowing out of the countryside and increasing concerns over food security uh, if China is sort of being decoupled from other economies and needs to be more self-sufficient, is that they need to get more young people into the countryside. But what they're doing is instead of them being forced, uh, you know, out onto farms like Xi Jinping was, they're doing things like teaching local farmers about e-commerce. They're updating their marketing. They're helping them sell online and doing videos. They're sort of renovating uh, rural towns. Now, the hope is centrally that some of these people will, of course, stay in these villages. Many of them, though, reluctant to to do that. They're just doing this for one or two years and they log everything they do on an app in the hopes that they can get a party job at the end of it, which would be job security. Uh, But some young people simply unwilling to leave the city, taking sort of what we would say is sort of in the UK and and, in Europe, sort of like the zero hours job. So Deliveroo type deliveries and sort of that kind of really kind of boring uh, you know, uh, well, that kind of labour that these young people say they're finding boring, uh, but that they're doing until they can hopefully find something. And by staying in the city, they hope they can spot it. Let's move on to a story in The Independent uh, about someone who is uh, addicted to Duolingo. Yeah, I love this story. Uh, you know, as as someone who uh, you know, really tried with languages when I was younger, you know, I'd the UK is notoriously terrible at learning languages. Like we don't make them compulsory. We start them too late in this country. It's just not prioritised. Uh, and um, 
you know, I grew up on, uh, I moved to the continent when I was seven. All the kids that lived around me were already speaking five, six languages. Uh, and I only spoke English and I sort of did my best to learn French and I've got it, but it's a bit rusty. Um, but uh, Duolingo, I have had little bouts of going in. It is very good. But one of the things that this article points out is that there's sort of the, 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 the getting the streak so it counts every day that you do uh, and then you enter these sort of global league tables and that they say is the key to Duolingo success it now has 37 million users a day hooked on learning languages and part of it is to sort of maintain this streak uh, of doing it every day and putting the work in well yes I don't have you done Duolingo I have done it yeah, yeah and the owl we need to address the owl duo I believe you're talking about apologies Duo. I did not yeah. know what you were called I just call you the owl yeah because if you don't keep up with these streaks and get wildly competitive, this woman talks about sneaking away from business meetings to go Dates to the loot and, and to everything to do it, yeah, to keep me. a streak going. Um, yeah. Poor woman uh, needs to get out more. There, there's this, <laughs> there's this, <laughs> there is this dreadful thing that they they deploy this sort of slightly passive aggressive guilt trip on yes. you if you haven't practiced your yes. grammar yeah. each day. And I actually found that phenomenally irritating. Did you? Also, okay. having done Duolingo, I sometimes can you know wonder what the practicalities of the language well, this... process is because once I did one and they gave me nothing but Michael Jackson um song titles. <laughs> <laughs> I just okay. thought okay, you're having some fun here, but how useful is that if I want to go into a shop and buy some bread? Yes, I think you have to cater the course. There is a story here about a guy that uh, learned Portuguese through it and it, when he did get to Brazil then he said he he felt that he wasn't comfortable in conversation. He knew all the words, but it did take him three months to get comfortable. But it does seem that people like that pesky out. I mean, this there's a woman here photographed who did 365 days, and she made herself uh, an owl cake, duo the owl cake. So some people do seem to, to like the owl. I worry about people, don't you, Vinny? <laughs> but it's these simple psychological tricks. I mean, you know, I, I have tried in recent years to just I, I think I'd love to be better at maths because I am absolutely terrible another classic British thing and I think if there was a, a nagging owl that made me do it a little bit every day it would it would make me better you'd never see me for dust as an <laughs> owl telling me to do maths uh, but we can always dream Vincent McAvinney thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio the time here in London is 7.33 you're listening to The Globalist with me Emma Nelson time now for a look at the headlines Australia's Prime Minister will meet the Chinese President Xi Jinping in Beijing later. The meeting is being seen as a key moment in improving relations between the two countries after a series of disputes over trade and security. Russia's new strategic nuclear submarine has successfully tested an intercontinental ballistic missile. The so-called Bulava missile is designed to carry up to six nuclear warheads. It was launched from the Imperator Alexander III submarine from an underwater position off Russia's northern coast. And there's been criticism of Ukraine's military after more than 20 soldiers were killed at an awards ceremony near to the front line. A Russian missile hit as Ukrainian troops were marking Artillery Day, celebrating military personnel working in artillery and missile units. President Volodymyr Zelensky said the incident could have been avoided. And those are the headlines on The Globalist.
Now, the US President Joe Biden is facing a fresh obstacle in his battle for re-election, and it comes from a member of his own Democratic Party. Late last month, Congressman Dean Phillips of Minnesota announced his entry into the race for the presidency. And while Joe Biden faces other gadfly challenges for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination, Phillips is the first with any real chance of making life difficult for the president's hopes. As a result, the White House is fighting back. Journalist Simon Marks filed this report from Washington. In just a dozen seconds on CBS News last month, Congressman Dean Phillips of Minnesota made it official. Why are you running for president? Because I need to. I feel so much love for our country. I feel it slipping away. I never imagined in my lifetime that I'd have the concerns that I have about our country right now. Risking the fury of the Democratic Party establishment, of which he has long been a member, he disclosed that he had decided to challenge Joe Biden for the party's presidential nomination. The first signs had been evident a few weeks ago when Phillips resigned a leadership position with the Democrats' caucus on Capitol Hill. And then came the official campaign kickoff in the battleground state of New Hampshire. I am running for the Democratic nomination for president of the United States because, my friends, it is time for a change, and I am ready to lead our great nation to a secure and a more prosperous future. But as Phillips obviously knows, the United States already has a Democrat in the White House who says he's doing precisely that. So why put himself out there? He explained what he called his two core convictions to supporters who gathered for the launch of his campaign. I, in the Democratic candidate, who can win, who can win the 2024 election. And second, it is time for the torch to be passed to a new generation of American leaders right here, all around the country and all around the world. As Phillips indicated, he's running because he is convinced that Joe Biden cannot win four more years in the Oval Office. And he doesn't hesitate publicly to predict the president's demise in exactly a year's time. The president, Joe Biden, is going to lose the next election. The numbers are horrific. The issue right now is not who Joe Biden is. The issue is very singular. America wants change. The argument that November 2024 will be a change election in the United States is certainly supported by the opinion polls. Joe Biden's approval rating has slid again over the last couple of weeks, down to around 37% in the latest Gallup survey. Most troubling for the White House, that latest Gallup poll shows that confidence in Biden is even now sliding among Democrat voters, down 11% in the past month alone to its lowest level since his administration began. Phillips, who is 54, believes Biden at the age of 80 simply needs to move on. I was three years old when Joe Biden became a United States senator. Over a 50-year career in Washington, he has served our country with grace, with competency, and with empathy. But there does come a time where the past generation should hand the torch to the next. The time is now for the next generation to take that baton and do better for our country, for our children, and for our future. With millions of Americans already leery over Biden's hopes to remain in the White House until he's 86, having a younger Democrat out there openly challenging the president is not a welcome development for the Biden campaign. The president's supporters on Capitol Hill scoff at the congressman's audacity and question what he's really bringing to the table. Pramila Jayapal is a Democrat in the House of Representatives from the state of Washington. Everyone's got the right to run, but I'm sorry, I have no idea what 
what he is running on that is different from what President Biden is running on. He took the same bold stances that President Biden has taken in this country on domestic issues. And I I really don't see what what he's doing. Other observers smell a rat, noting that Dean Phillips' campaign is being managed by a veteran Republican operative who previously worked for George W. Bush, Arnold Schwarzenegger and John McCain. The speech that Phillips received about how he could win the presidency, it can be something that, you know, he's already willing to believe. Reed Galen co-founded the Lincoln Project, a group of Republicans dedicated to keeping Donald Trump out of the White House. He argues the Phillips candidacy will only enhance Trump's prospects. Damage to Biden will be ancillary, but not insignificant. He is doing the work of Trump. And the Russians and the Saudis and the Iranians and the Emiratis and the Chinese and the North Koreans. And so what I would ask, Mr. Phillips, if I had the opportunity is, why would you sit at the table with these people? Phillips denies that his campaign is part of a dirty tricks operation by Republicans to separate Joe Biden from votes that he otherwise would win. So far, he hasn't made much of a dent. Polls show he's securing the support of only 6% of Democrats. But the race is young, and the latest entrant to it says he is speaking for an exhausted majority of voters who wish the country had a better choice than a tired rematch of the last presidential election. For Monocle Radio, I'm Simon Marks in Washington. Many thanks, Simon. Still to come on today's programme. Wow, fantastic baby. Who doesn't like a little bit of Big Bang on Monocle Radio? You're listening to The Globalist and we'll find out in a little while why K-pop boy bands are all the rage. Now, can COP28 inspire a refreshed commitment to fighting climate change? Gatherings in Egypt before that in Glasgow have failed. This year's UN meeting is in Dubai, where the irony of holding the conference in a location mainly reached by aeroplane is not lost, with the UAE drafting an intergovernmental declaration on climate change and health, notably excluding the term fossil fuels. Mustafa Al-Rawi is Acting Managing Director for CNN Business Arabic in Dubai, from where he joins me now. Very good morning to Mustafa. Good morning, Emma. So, uh, I was just hearing you talking about the irony of the location. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I just make the point that the Middle East is is kind of the perfect place from which to have this forum, given that the populations in this region are directly affected by the consequences of climate change, including extreme weather, food insecurity, and other aspects. So, if we if 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 we living in this region don't put in our effort and and kind of help to convene this, then then who is? You are in an absolutely intractable situation here, aren't you? It's very hard because, I mean, already I think people think of the Middle East, they think, wow, it's hot there. But it's it's more than that. It's, um, you know, we've seen over the last decade across the region how climate change has impacted society, uh, politics, uh, increased the chances of conflict, um, you know, that's what we've experienced. It's been, it's been very, very real, as well as the extreme weather that, that we all witness around the world. The difficulty that you face is that the UAE and the whole of the Middle East is experiencing climate change and, and, and its effects. Nonetheless, the UAE is very famous for incredibly well-maintained, highly air-conditioned buildings and some rather lovely airlines. Yes, it's true. We, we enjoy, we're lucky enough to enjoy, I guess, what you would term now a resilient lifestyle to climate change 
and with that comes a cost. And uh, I, th I think that applies, you know, in any developed country, in any affluent nation. How do you balance, uh, you know, the, the need for access to uh, quality of life versus what's required when it comes to, to, to reacting to climate change? So in that context, how does Dubai ready itself for COP28 when the inevitable questions about climate change and fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera, will always be asked straight away? Yeah, it's a thorny issue. And, and this is, as we, as we draw closer to November 30th and the start of COP28, uh, we, be, we begin to see uh, playing out in the media and elsewhere uh, the particular flashpoints, which really, for, for most people who aren't, sort of aware of the detail of, of the negotiations at these meetings really really can be very granular. And at the moment, there are those that feel that not including the term fossil fuel um, in, in, in declarations such as, as, as the recent one on, on health and climate is an indication that the overall process will not go far enough to curbing the fossil fuel industry. And as a result, because the UAE is the sixth largest in the world in terms of reserves of oil and gas, then, you know, the suspicion grows that the, this process is being hijacked by the oil and gas producers. And really it comes down to where do you sit in terms of the philosophy of, of this whole process? Do you believe, as some of the activists believe, that the, the oil and gas industry has no place at the table, similarly to tobacco, when we banned it and we said tobacco producers should have no place? Or do we believe, as the UAE is arguing and the has the presidency for COP28, that you need to bring in those parties if you want meaningful and just and equitable change? So are we seeing, therefore, do, um, Dubai being, as you said at the beginning of this interview, the, the perfect place for this discussion to have, given the fact that you step outside and you feel climate change? It, is there a sense that something can be done differently this year where both Glasgow and Egypt failed to it one almost felt they failed to to put the the the, the leaders of the the world's biggest polluters such as china they failed to put their feet to the fire the the, the, the process we've been told since 2015 and the breakthrough paris climate agreement that we're going to have a stock take for at this cop coming up now we were told that the cops were the forum in which we're going to meet our generation's greatest challenge which is to handle global warming and, and deal with climate change. Now, we've, we've been told that. Is that true? Probably not completely. Can a conference ever really address this? And certainly a conference that is uh, not perfect, as you say, in the, in the last few meetings, we've seen the limitations of it. And so at COP28, the message is that they realize that we need to do more. So they announced the climate and health and and yesterday they announced that a breakthrough had been made on loss and damage, which was something that comes from COP27. But there's a lot of trust that needs to be restored, whether it's with the biggest polluters or against the biggest polluters, or whether it's about the developed world not contributing the $100 billion to the developing economies that need it for the energy transition, or whether we should just... Sorry, go on. No, sorry. Are there any specific um, aims here? I mean, you talked about trying to maintain the uh, the the Paris Agreement and the, and the limitation of 1.5 yes. degrees. But is there anything that we know that, that in Dubai they're going to absolutely go for? Or is this, or do we fear, as, as I think, you know, questions were asked at the, at the end of the last one, that this becomes a very important and interesting talking shop, but 
at the end of the day, nothing is, you know, declarations are very, very hard to yeah. come by now. Yeah. And, and like I said, it can it can seem quite esoteric, this process from the outside. But from what I understand, one of the main challenges they're going to focus on is this need to reduce global carbon emissions by 43%, which is an incredible scale um, that, you know, more than half. And how do you do this? One way is uh, to increase renewable energy. Um, and they, they, there's going to be a focus on tripling that renewable energy capacity in the next few years, which obviously requires funding in the trillions of dollars. But then the flip side of that argument is that, um, well, yes, you need that and you need it faster. Uh, and the, the, the row really will be how quickly do you phase down or phase out, this is the argument, over fossil fuels. So yes, there will be progress made on clean energy, but will there be enough progress according to all the parties on how quickly we reduce our reliance on, on, the, on the dirtier fossil fuels? Mustafa Al-Rawi, speaking to us from Dubai. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You are The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Now on The Globalist for a roundup of news from the Balkans. Guy Delorny is Monocle's correspondent in the region. He joins me on the line now from Ljubljana. Very good morning to you, Guy. Good morning, Emma, and good morning all. Good morning. Um, right, let's talk about Serbia. Um, have you booked your train ticket and packed your woolly jumpers to go and stand outside some polling booths on the 17th of December? I must admit, but booking a train ticket would be a very bad idea because the train between Ljubljana and uh, and Belgrade hasn't been running for a while. And even when it was running, it was um, it was a schlep, Emma. To be fair, it was a schlep, and it wasn't a very comfortable schlep. I've never been so grateful to see a, a little old man with a tray full of uh, Turkish coffee on the border between Croatia and Serbia as I have been to see anybody in my life. So, so no, no train ticket. Uh, but uh, yes, I'm standing by. I'm braced for the election action, which is hotting up. Doing it for, doing it remotely. I'm assuming now uh, the. the- little man at the border with a Turkish coffee will have to wait another day. Um, he will. But we do have elections in Serbia coming up next month. We do indeed. And the date has been named by President Aleksandr Vucic uh, as the 17th of December. And it has to be said, this was about the worst kept secret in Serbia. Uh, the opposition have been asking for, for months for fresh elections to be held. This is despite the fact that the previous parliamentary elections uh, were only in April last year. And President Vucic had been making noises that he was willing to play along with this. And the date of 17th of December had been floated for some time. Um, Mayors had been resigning around the country who were members of Mr Vucic's progressive party. That meant that the elections in those municipalities uh, needed to be called within 30 days of those resignations. All of that was pointing towards this date. Mr Vucic has now confirmed that. But the fact that it's been an open secret for some time means that for once, and perhaps for the first time in the past um, 11 years since the Progressive Party took power, the opposition have actually got their act together. And how have they managed to do that? 
in this case, it's the, the pro-EU opposition that we're talking about. So when you're looking at opposition in Serbia, you've got the, the, the governing party is the Progressive Party. And it's an interesting name for them to have um, because some people would argue they're not particularly progressive, uh, but they are at least ostensibly a pro-EU party themselves. This was what Mr. Vucic said uh, when he co-founded the party back in 2008. He left the radicals who were Serbian nationalist hardline and he said, no, those days are over. Um, we're now the Progressive Party, or the, the Radical Party still exists, incidentally, but he says, as the Progressive Party, we're moving forward, we're going towards the European Union. Um, a lot of the, uh, the opposition parties in Serbia these days reckon that while Mr. Vucic might be talking the talk, he's not particularly walking the walk in terms of the values that he should be adopting. So the pro-EU opposition have actually decided to join together, and it's, they're normally an atomized affair of various different splinter groups and ego groups and my goodness they've actually set all that aside and they're running on this joint ticket calling themselves Serbia against violence which is a reference to the the shootings in May which the opposition say is a reflection of the uh, the rhetoric which which has pervaded the the progressive party's time in power um, so if they're all running together then that means they've got a better chance of getting elected and you know, it's not a sure thing by any means because the progressives have dominated party politics in Serbia for more than a decade now, and they control much of the media. But if you've actually got a united opposition ticket, that's going to be a much more coherent proposition for voters to look at. Finally, um, we've seen a sort of a, a gradual build-up of um, border controls in areas which should, in theory, be totally border-free because of Schengen. What's happening? Well, at the moment, it looks like we're not going to have border-free travel uh, in this region until uh, the new year at the very earliest, because uh, Italy, Slovenia, Croatia, Hungary, uh, the borders there have gone back up, in essence. And uh, This is ostensibly due to the raised levels of terror alert because of what's going on um, in the Middle East, for starters, but also concerns about the numbers of people coming up the so-called Balkan route. And, you know, the, the controls went in for a temporary 10 days, and that temporary 10 days has been extended. And it looks like it's going to be extended further. And you're getting a lot of grumpy locals, Emma, surprise, surprise, who were rather enjoying the Schengen regime because Croatia only joined Schengen in March in, in for, for road crossings. And uh, they're, they're now putting up with, uh, you know, waits of half an hour, an hour at borders going into Croatia, into Slovenia. And they're saying, well, this isn't even peak season. If this were the summer, imagine how long the queues would be. And uh, people are highly disgruntled. And how much is this costing people as well? Because time and money. Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, I haven't got a, I can't put a number on it, but it's, it's certainly putting me off from, you know, nipping into Croatia to do anything. If I fancied, say, I don't know, uh, checking out the Christmas market in Zagreb, um, I, I would, would be thinking twice because I'd be saying, well, do I really want to uh, muck around with spending half an hour to an hour at the Brigana border crossing? Guy Deloney, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Finally, on today's programme, if you like a little bit of this...
then you will be delighted to hear that this winter a slew of new K-pop idol boy bands is arriving. Take note now of the following names, NXD, Ampers and One and East Shine. They're brand new and they're being launched and to tell us more, I'm delighted to say that joining me now from Seoul is Bernie Cho, president of the DFSB Collective, a South Korean creative agency and a well-loved voice on Monocle Radio. Very, very good afternoon, very good morning to you, Bernie. Oh, it's good to be back. It's been a long time. It has. And we're delighted to to bring you back in to tell us about the, the renaissance of K-pop bands. Probably doesn't never went away for you guys, but for everybody else, just tell us who is being launched in the next few months. Oh, my goodness. Right now, it seems like not just every month, but almost every week. And sometimes it almost feels like every day there's going to be a new boy band and girl band being launched by not just the Fab Four Korean music management companies, uh, Hyde being number one, JYP, YGSM, that whole alphabet soup of the power players in Korea, but also many of the emerging um, artist management companies are just engaged in a slew of audition shows, not just inside Korea, across Asia, but beyond Asia. And it's so much so that amongst these new boy bands and girl bands on audition shows, we're now actually starting to see um, new boy bands and girl bands that are being scouted, recruited, developed outside of Korea with non-Korean members. So the whole K-pop is not just getting bigger, but in some ways, um, the K is starting to get a little bit erased as well. What's, what's the K being replaced with? Because surely internationally, the charm of K-pop is the fact that it is this, you know, th- these idols from South Korea. Well, you know, um, Luminate, uh, a U.S. Um, entertainment and media analytics company, just recently came out with their first happy report for 2023. And nine out of the top 10 best-selling CDs in the U.S. were K-pop CDs. So I think safe to say that K-pop has now become pop music right now, not just in Asia, but now even in the U.S. And as a result... Um, you know, the idea of K-pop becoming more Asian and more global, um, in some ways, K-pop almost feels like Taekwondo, where, you know, although it, everyone knows Taekwondo is a Korean sport, you know, there's a high likelihood that a medalist uh, might hail from, you know, North America, Latin America, the Middle East, Europe, or Korea. And so K-pop is definitely having a bit of a kind of a crossroads moment. And there are the biggest K-pop stars right now. Some of them happen to be not even Korean. So uh, it's interesting times. Where are they from? Well, for instance, the most popular K-pop star idol right now on social media is Lisa from Blackpink. Uh, She is a very talented rapper and dancer hailing from Thailand. And she has become a global K-pop icon, not just an idol. And, you know, even um, just not too long ago, she won Best K-pop Act at the MTV Video Music Awards. And so I think in some ways, Lisa from Blackpink is sort of uh, what Eminem was to hip hop, where you now have to think K-pop is something that's beyond Korean. So we have this slew of, of new bands coming up and you said they're coming, they're coming thick and fast. What is it that's causing this, this, this glut of, um, of new bands? Because obviously if you start to release a lot in one go, some will, some will live and some will not. Yeah, you know, it's, it's one of these things where it seems like the appetite for uh, boy bands and girl bands, um, not just from the fans, but from a lot of the um, management companies, the appetite seems to be growing further and farther and faster. Obviously, people like myself wonder if maybe there's oversaturation or just just overwhelming just numbers coming out. 
But so far, the market seems to be accommodating this growth. And uh, what's also interesting is we're starting to see a post-boy band, post-girl band movement and momentum happening as well, where many of the individual members of these particular outfits are striking out and, and, and striking gold, platinum on the charts by being solo acts who didn't have to necessarily break up or break away from their bands. They can still be part of their bands and have a successful solo career. And so it's very interesting to see how the boy band, girl band um, business model has really evolved and permutated and, 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 and continues to dominate. Bernie Cho, thank you as ever for joining us live on Monocle Radio. That's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers Isabella Jewell and Emma Sell. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. After the headlines, more music on the way and the briefings live at midday here in London. I'll be there for that. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening and have a good week. Monocle.